It's a squat. It looks like their butt's tucking under, posterior tilt, hang kill butt, whatever you want to say. Putting that zercher load on them gets them to get their thorax ahead of their ass. Am I saying that right? Yep. And then that gives that just seems to, to clean that up. Um, whereas if you're typical anteriorly tilted, nordotic, extended, whatever, we're trying to keep their upper body stacked up on top of their hips, right? The opposite we just talked about. So front squat, goblet, heels elevated, gets them to, to stack up more appropriately. And that's why you see the different, uh, like lower extremity presentations. If you ask someone to jump and stick a landing versus doing like quick repetitive pogo hops. So if I jump and stick a landing, there isn't the need to turn everything back around and push it up away from the ground. So I can maintain hip flexion, external and external rotation and abduction because I'm not trying to push my guts back up. I can let my pelvic diaphragm remain eccentrically oriented because I'm not changing direction. Whereas if I'm doing something like a quick pogo hop, you're automatically going to start to see the internal rotation at the hips increase because you can't let the pelvic diaphragm descend to such a great extent if you want to be able to get off the ground quickly. That was Mike Kozak and Stephen Laflamme. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 Max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 184 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. Our guests are Mike Kozak and Stephen Laflon. Mike Kozak is a coach and owner of Soar Fitness in Columbus, Ohio. Mike has trained hundreds of youth athletes as well as a number of current and prospective college and pro athletes. Mike is a mentee of Adarian Bar and he frequently hosts Adarian's Rewire clinics out of his facility. 
Mike is a fervent student of biomechanics and cutting-edge sports performance techniques. He is also well-versed in the world of PRI, or Postural Restoration Institute. Mike has also written several articles for Just Fly Sports and is a guy that I've loved bouncing ideas off of over the past year or two. Stephen Laflamme is a physical therapist. He achieved his clinical doctorate of physical therapy from The Ohio State University in 2016. Stephen is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist, as well as an Olympic weightlifter with experience on the national level. Stephen has traveled the country to be a part of the nation's best educational programs and learn from the nation's best professionals. Stephen and Mike work together with athletes in Columbus, Ohio, Mike on the coaching end of things, and Stephen on the physical therapy end. So for the show today, one of the things I really wanted to get to with these guys is they do such an amazing job of individualizing programs to the athlete on the level of resistance training, speed, sprint training, jump training. They do an amazing job of taking the wide holistic view of human performance in the body and finding the things that work the best for the individual athlete to elicit performance. So for the show today, we're going to get into things like bilateral and single leg squatting, which everyone has their own favorite variations. And many times we have a favorite variation based off something we liked or perhaps a coach that we liked and respected um, had a favorite of their own. And so we utilize that. But, uh, but Mike and Steven are really going to get into what individual aspects of athletes, what postures, what presentations, what hip alignments are going to make one squat variation, say a zercher squat versus a front squat, better than another. We're also going to address these concepts on the level of single leg squats and as well as the generalities that represent best practices for the the widest swath of the bell curve of athletes. So not individualizing things, what types of squats tend to hit or check off the most boxes for how what the athletic qualities we want to develop in utilizing this mode of exercise. Another thing that we're going to get into and really um, it's it's almost like passing the baton of sorts, but is the idea of knees in, valgus, and, and that whole array or that whole arena of performance. And Justin Moore a few episodes ago did a fantastic deep dive into that. Um, on the show today, Mike and Steven are going to go a little bit more into that and the level of practical recommendations and squatting and jumping and how these things are playing out in their program and what they're looking for. Finally, we're going to get into a little bit on the foot and particularly what Mike has taken from Adarian Bar and the things that he is utilizing with his athletes on the level of foot training. So this show front to back, really, truly fantastic and just helps us to individualize things for our athletes a little better, as well as just pay respect to just different alignments and presentations and also come away with some better general principles for just how to program the squad a little bit better. Again, really cool show. Love talking to these guys. So let's get down to it. Episode 184. Uh, so anyways, uh, I'd love to, one thing I'd really love to get into with both of you guys. I've talked about, I've talked with you um, both uh, on some length on, to, on, on these details, but like how different athletes squat based on different hip and pelvic structures. And I know it can get a little complex, but I'd like to start with just a general guideline of using different types of squats, front squat, zercher, et cetera, uh, based on what an athlete is coming to you with and why are you doing that? Yeah, I, I think um, table tests, just looking at someone's passive range of motion and, and what they have access to can be a good starting point, but then also looking at how they move you know, while they're split squatting or squatting. Um, based on how they move and combining that with the table test, then you can set up an exercise with the appropriate constraints to help them move in the manner that you desire. Um, 
And so that could be adding load to one side of the body versus the other. That could be, uh, you know, biasing the movement with a, a cable row or cable press. Um, there's really multiple ways you could just, you know, manipulate the load or foot position in order to get the desired response. Yeah, I mean, on, on my end, so just to, every kid I train does not see Steven, obviously. Um, so if a kid I train, I'm like, Hey man, whether they're in pain or not, I recommend that folks, Hey, see Steven. And he sends me an email and says, here's the way to load them. He's like, I would recommend Zercher loading heels elevated. Then that takes a guesswork out on my end. That's what I'm using. Um, for my general population of kids that don't see Steven, they're not in pain, whatever. For me, I just go with whatever looks best. Um, and obviously taking, you know, all the kids that I've had see Steve, be like, oh, you know, this kid seems to fit the mold of someone's Zercher squats would help. Uh, on my end, higher box safety bar squats seem to be the one that I would say works the best uh, for the majority of my population. There's just something about that safety bar that kind of, I'd almost say it's like the trap bar of squat bars. I don't know, Stephen, you could throw your two cents in on that, but uh, it, it seems to just make squatting look better for most of my kids uh, as opposed to a traditional back or front. How high a box are you talking about before? Just quickly, how high a box are you typically talking about there? Uh, well, he'll indicate, so we've been big on the heels elevated ramps. Uh, again, another thing that just, because we're always looking at the feet, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, you know, putting them up on that seems to buy them some more room to sit down. So if you've got someone that sits way far back, the heels elevated ramp to a bar, and that typically I count about two inches for heels elevated ramp. So let's just say a uh, kid, I'd like to squat into a 16 inch box. We might heels elevate them and go 16 inch box plus a Airx pad. Um, but, uh, you know, and if they're young, Eventually, be like, all right, let's see if we can get them to 15 inches. Uh, how does it look? Get lighter weight. Okay, looks pretty good. Let's stay there. Oh, no, that looked awful. Let's just stick with 16. Uh, you know, personally, I really don't. My goal is not to get every single kid to ask to grass, obviously, or even parallel. So, And I think the initial progression of like a high box, you know, it often does look better. But I think there are reasons that it usually looks better other than it's just higher. So in order to squat effectively, you need to be able to posteriorly rotate the pelvis. And the hamstrings are a really important muscle to be able to do that. By squatting to a high box, you allow the hamstrings to always stay within the range of motion where they can contribute to hip extension. Whereas if you know I squat down to parallel, because the hamstring is now running parallel with the femur, they don't have a hip extension moment anymore. So if you know, you can keep people up high initially. It, it can make it a little bit easier for them to find and feel their hamstrings in order to posteriorly rotate the pelvis. And, and so you can get that nice kind of stacked shoulders over the hips position that you're usually looking for uh, to start with. So I sure. think that's one reason. I like that. So basically a hamstring centric, it's really about the hamstrings at the end of the day. Uh, and the position just kind of is a reflection of that if they're engaging that muscle or not. Um, I, I think it can be just from experience. If I have people squat low, they they can never feel their hamstrings contributing to the movement. But if I keep them up high on a high box, they have a much better chance of keeping the hamstrings engaged 
and the hips underneath them. And I think that's because of the hip extension moment of the hamstring when they're in a more shallow degree of hip flexion. Yeah, absolutely. I know that Justin Moore just talked about that recently, like keeping that um, ischial tuberosity lined up and um, it, it makes it is. I mean, it's just the same thing as as sprinting as well as we we live in this. Um, I think very much of the the sports performance and training field lives in a, a world of positions. Get to this position. Get to parallel. Sprint with your knee, yay high, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But every time we do that, it takes out. It, it kind of devoids us a little bit potentially of another element, like you said, feeling your hamstring or sprinting with your knee too high. Uh, timing of the Achilles tendon and the, the the impulse of the calf, like so, I just I really like how that it really lends to a feel like a feel base. Make sure you're feeling this in the movement as soon as you get to a certain position, and you aren't, then that becomes a problem. Yeah, I think it lets you know like if the motion is legal or not. You know, like if they get into a position and it looks good, and you ask them, you know, hey, what do you feel like is going on here? And they say, oh, well, I'm, you know. For the example, if they're squatting and say, oh, I, I just feel it all in the front of my thighs and you're going after hamstrings, well, then you probably didn't accomplish the goal that you wanted or they're not achieving the task in, in what you would consider a, a uh, you know correct or optimal manner. So I, I think asking clients, hey, where do you feel this kind of definitely lets you know if, if they've achieved the task in the manner that you wanted them to. Do you guys feel like, uh, and maybe Stephen, particularly for you, because I know Mike, you had said uh, Stephen could recommend a type of squat based on an athlete's presentation. So, why specifically might you recommend, say, a zercher versus a, a front squat or a single leg squat? I think a lot of times, and even myself, will uh, in the field will just recommend these just for the sake of variety, get some rotation. You know, not doing the same thing, and and it's you know it's fun to switch things up, obviously. But from a presentation-based standpoint, why are you recommending one squat over another? Sure. Um, so I, I'd probably start with talking about split squat variations. I think those are usually a little bit easier for clients to grab uh, grasp initially and then maybe talk about more bilateral, like typical squatting. Um, usually we'll try to start people more in a split squat pattern because it's usually easier for them to balance. You know, they have their feet spread way apart. They have a huge base of support. <clears throat> it usually makes the balance aspect a lot easier. Um, from a posterior uh, pelvic rotation standpoint, because my hip is in a more shallow degree of hip flexion in that split squat, um, it, it also makes hamstrings a little bit easier to engage. But so for with a split squat, for example, like if I do a unilateral loading variation, so I have my left foot in front and I add a kettlebell to my right side. That's going to bias hip internal rotation of my front leg. Whereas if I do a split squat with my left foot in front and a kettlebell in my left hand, that would bias hip external rotation of my front leg. Um, and so you could correlate those two things with like getting into a cut versus being able to get out of a cut where if people can't get into a cut, maybe they need more of that hip internal rotation and contralateral loading. Whereas if they can't get out, then you might do more ipsilateral loading. Um, you could even modify that even more just based on where you place the load on the right side or the left. So if I'm doing, again, the split squat with my left foot in front and a weight on my right side, if I put the weight 
up in like a kettlebell front rack position, I'm going to need uh, more trunk inclination forward in order to get the weight over my base of support. Whereas if I'm just holding the kettlebell down by my side, my trunk will be more upright as I execute that hip internal rotation. So now I can kind of bias not only hip internal rotation, but whether my trunk is tipping forward or backward um, while also addressing hip rotation. So uh, that's that's really awesome. I was going to say with that too, and I because I, I was going to get into this as well. But people who present with an anterior or a posterior tilt kind of naturally, like, and this is something that you guys have taught me that I that really sticks with me is the idea of someone who, and, and I think this is all from Bill Hartman. But if someone who has a, a very anteriorly tilted position and doesn't really get out of it so much they would probably, they would, they would need more of the posterior type cues, or maybe they would need that front rack position to get them posteriorly tilted versus someone who you've talked about people who are posteriorly tilted. They need to spill their, their mic. I think you said Hank Hill, but they need to spill their guts forward. So for a, for a posteriorly tilted person, would they be better with hands up, like the dumbbell holding straight down on the bottom to kind of facilitate that? Is that what you're getting at for holding like in a, in a goblet versus at your sides? Um, I think it would be different depending on whether your feet are side by side or if you're in a split squat. Okay. Because now where my weight is biased um, within the base of support is different. So if I'm doing a um, like a bilateral squatting variation with my feet side by side, if I put that load up higher towards my head at, at like shoulder level, that's going to push me more upright. My, my trunk's going to be more upright and it would bias that posterior orientation of the of the pelvis whereas if i'm holding the load lower like down uh in like a zercher squat position then my hips are going to translate further backwards um in, in that you know symmetrical feet side by side type of squat but if i'm doing something like a split squat where i only have the weight on one side because i have to get my weight over my base of support which in this case is my front foot where most of my weight would be um, I would have to incline at the trunk more if I'm holding the kettlebell up by my shoulder because that's the only way I can get the load over my foot. Whereas if it's down by my side, now my hips would actually have to uh, – I wouldn't incline at the trunk as much and wouldn't anteriorly orient the pelvis because that would actually push the weight further away from the base of support that I'm trying to push from. Uh, I, yeah, I was going to say I, I really like the the internal external rotation thing. I, I I really see that because um, I know that's one of the things that uh, we we're going to talk a little bit about internal rotation range with athletes. But what would the reason be for trying to, uh, from either an injury or performance standpoint, in a single leg position, trying to get someone more forward leaning or trying to get them more vertical leaning? Um, it's going to impact the position of the femur and the lower extremity below. Um, and, you know, depending on, so if someone's like really, really uh, kind of spongy when they jump and land and they can't get off the ground quick, you know, those are usually the people that you see that are, um, you know, have like a sway back posture or, or it, you know, it looks like the hips are kind of tipped backwards. I got you. Uh, so by bringing everything forward and, and getting some more trunk inclination, it helps unweight the pelvic floor a little bit and can help make the movement a little bit, you know, snappier and more elastic off the ground. Whereas, you know, those people that are already 
have a lot of anterior pelvic orientation and everything's already tipped forward, they usually can't descend down. You know, they, they hit the ground and they're very elastic. They have a tough time loading. And so by tipping the hips backwards, it allows a little bit, you know, softer loading response. It, it gives them more time up and uh, when they land on the ground. So by just by biasing the trunk forward or, you know, to a more upright position, it would kind of change those characteristics of landing where when they're more upright, they're probably a little bit softer. If everything tips forward, it's very like abrupt, um, hard landings. I love it. It really draws out the the observational quality. Like you have to watch how the athlete performs. Are they reactive, soft, you know, or spongy? Are they, uh, and, and what do we program as a result of that? Mike, do you have anything to add in terms of what you're doing from the, the performance driven, uh, sector and things and what you're seeing with athletes? Uh, you know, honestly, as, <laughs> that's why I confide in Steven and, and keep smart people around me. Right. Cause there's a reason I didn't give you that. I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> in that question. Right. Um, you know, it's one way like I said, if he tells me to load a kid a certain way, then, then that's what I do. And hopefully the kid goes to see him again and then he'll send me a new write up and say, all right, let's, let, let's go this route. Um, you know, for you had said, I think you just said it from an observation or the look test thing on my end, it's like, okay, the way I'm loading this kid right now just isn't looking good and they're not feeling it where I need to feel it. Knowing Steven and what he's told me, I have a lot more tools in the box. Okay, all right, let's try Zercher. Let's try Heels Elevated. Let's let's try this. Do you feel it? Yes, okay, that's a win. Let's do that for a couple of weeks. And Because uh, like I said, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't really care what tools we use to load them. I just want them to play well and obviously be healthy and then obviously from a business standpoint, continue to have their parents pay me to train them, you know, so, uh, you know anybody that's listening to this, that's in my uh, private sector, I, I would imagine that resonates. So. Yeah. Being able to have options to give athletes what they need is so critical. So just for a summary too, before we kind of move on from this one is what, what's maybe you answered already, but just to summarize what, so what would be the advantage of a, like, why might I zercher someone versus uh, front? So it's based on the load. So uh, or maybe this is just me summarizing in my own mind. A zercher, the weight is lower. So that would potentially encourage a more forward tilt of the torso. Uh, so that could be better for somebody who is uh, a swayback type person. Yeah. So, so for just, a, again, going back to the look test, if you're a strength coach in a weight room, the kid that you're like, man, I just cannot get their ass behind them. To squat, it looks like their butt's tucking under, posterior tilt, Hank Hill butt, whatever you want to say. Putting that zercher load on them gets them to get their thorax ahead of their ass. Am I saying that right? Yep. And then that gives that just seems to, to clean that up. Um, whereas if you're typical anteriorly tilted, lordotic, extended, whatever, we're trying to keep their upper body stacked up on top of their hips, right? The opposite we just talked about. So front squat, goblet, heels elevated, gets them to, to stack up more appropriately. So it's really on my end with my general population, it's just those two puzzle pieces. That's where I go. Um, and then if they see Steven and they tell me, he tells me otherwise, then, then we go that way. Yeah, just trying to find easy solutions that they can execute without having to keep them to death. You know, you can change front foot elevation versus rear foot elevation. You can change plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. You can change where you add the weight. 
just trying to find easy solutions where you can just hand them, you know, okay, here's a sandbag, do the squat. And you're just looking for whatever allows them to execute the movement however you deem acceptable with the least amount of cueing as possible. Um, because if you're having to cue someone to death, it ends up, you know, it just turns into a shit show and can't really get anything accomplished. Right, especially in a group exercise environment like I run, you know, search uh, your squats are, are pretty safe. You know, we don't have to have a really, I can watch them. I don't have to stand behind them and spot them. I just got to hand them the bag. Uh, now, I've gone as far as using like the uh, Pentagon attachment on a landmine, stack that up on a bunch of bumper plates and have a kid do like a, will look like a trap bar deadlift because the way the, the landmine flows, it just makes them tilt forward. Uh, so, you know, kids, I need to, I want to kind of hand your deadlifts a little bit. Even, even that option works. So. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, right on. Uh, so with, with all of this and Stephen, you mentioned it a little bit in the context of single leg work uh, in biasing where, what, what hand is that weight or kettlebell or dumbbell in? Um, working more of it, giving it more of an IR internal rotation or ER external rotation bias. Um, do you guys have any more? And I think internal rotation is the big one, uh, just in something that's, if you don't have it, it's going to cause some issues in uh, change of direction, agility, or potentially reactivity, things like that. Uh, you know, we talk, we talk about inside edge and a Darien bar a lot. Uh, so, and, and we could talk about that too within the scope of this question. Uh, but how do you approach working with athletes who might lack a hip or internal rotation? Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying where hip internal rotation is absolutely critical. And I, I know that, uh, you know, this is something, uh, a concept largely kind of provided by Bill Hartman. I, I know Justin Moore talked about it where, you know, internal rotation is needed for compression and that's going to be how, you know, you're able to overcome gravity and, you know, jump off a floor, jump off the floor, do anything like that. Um, so you, you can manipulate foot setup in order to kind of give the client the best chance of attaining some sort of internal rotation. Um, so initially, like if someone's really, really limited in hip internal rotation, then uh, going back to like a split squat example, if I'm trying to get more internal rotation of the left leg, I might initially set them up in a split squat with the left foot forward. And what this does is it puts them basically in almost towards the hip external rotation end of the spectrum. So think of walking at, you know, initial contact, early stance of gait, my hip is in external rotation. And so that's what it that's essentially the position of the left leg in the split squat in this example. So because they're biased towards the end of external rotation, they have some internal rotation available to them. Even if it's going from ER to zero or, you know, what you would consider neutral, you're still allowing them to get some internal rotation of the front hip. So maybe initially early on working on internal rotation with the leg in front of the uh, in front of the hips could be a good way to start to get some sort of internal rotation. And then you can move towards the feet being in more of a symmetrical pattern front to back, whether that's a lateral squat or like a lateral split stance. Now that would be like the mid stance of gait. And I've 
added some hip internal rotation by way of my pelvis moving over my femur. And once they get really good at that, then you can finally move towards getting internal rotation at terminal stance. And so that would be like step ups with a, a knee drive that could be, um, you know, like a cable row where you're rowing, uh, in this example, rowing with the left hand and my left foot is behind me. That would allow me, that would force me towards the maximum IR end of the spectrum where I'm getting IR adduction and extension of, of the leg. Uh, yeah, that that last one reminds you a little bit of uh, like the Franz Bosch, like hip lock type stuff in the step up where they're fi- you're finishing in a little bit of that position. And so I like that sequence, the starting with the basic split squat and then uh, the kind of a lateral lateral squat stand side to side and then eventually a single leg um, where so so each sub- subsequent piece of that sequence is basically starting you in less external rotation basically so you have less room for ir in each of those three progressions um so the initial like starting with the left foot in front because i'm starting in hip external rotation then i have a huge bandwidth Mm -hmm. of ir that i could potentially access even if it's you know um whereas once i get my leg behind me now I only can use the very end mm. of the IR spectrum. Um, so think of it almost as the same as the way the hips move during gait. Um, if, if my right ASIS is way in front of my left hip, then I'm already in internal rotation, so I have less to use. Whereas if, if my hip's behind, now I have all my internal rotation is still available to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, I think it can get pretty complex, but I like the way you, you laid it out there really sequentially. Uh, Mike, is there anything from a general perspective, just that you guys are trying to hit across the bandwidth of your um, performance training sessions? Uh, well, in, in terms of that, so, uh, Split stance cable rows, cable rows and half kneeling, various split squats. All of those things are programmed in a progression that, you know, I would deem appropriate for each kid, which, you know, I'm training kids, mind you. So 12, 13, 14 year olds, a lot of it is just some isometric. So, you know, a three position isometric split squat where, you know, like he says, you know, we'll put the and. I'll start with saying I assess every kid for a half hour one-on-one. So I got some notes on them, right? Like this kid absolutely can't split squat. It doesn't look like he can IR on his left hip, you know, whatever. So, you know, cueing zipper on big toe is something I learned from Steven to get that IR. So, you know, if I got a kid that is just clearly can't IR his left hip, you know, in a split squat, getting them to, you know, move the pelvis on the femur to get the zipper on the big toe. And then the magic question, do you feel your hamstrings? You know, so that question is really should be painted on our wall at the gym. <laughs> do you feel um, your hamstrings? <laughs> it, it's, you know, I'm palpating hamstring, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, you can know if a person's hamstring is on. So then it becomes this. Okay, this kid, I feel an ipsilateral split stance cable row is the best option for him because I'm really trying to get there, a kid that we have deemed we need to load them. 
okay, or they lack IR. So they might do a cable row with the left arm and the left foot in front of them, right? Well, then maybe the next month we'll do what Stephen just said. We'll take that left, we'll put, go contralateral. So now we're working that left hip when it's now an extension, you know, which would be down the line in progression. Um, or if I got someone that's on the opposite end, you know, we might just start on contralateral. And, and to be honest with you, my kids that don't see Steven or I'm like, ah, oh, this kid kind of looks down the middle. Contralateral seems to be a little bit easier to teach. So we just start there and then we make adjustments, you know, as, as I see fit. So with all, with kind of lending in, so intro rotation, I think it does lend in. And, and I know Justin Moore covered this a lot in a recent podcast, but I've, I've really seen some cool videos from you guys showing different types of athletes with different presentations and different needs in regards to the whole knees in and jumping element. And so I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit in terms of ACL prevention. So what's, um, I know Justin really went into a lot of Bill Hartman's work and the hydraulic aspects and the, the pelvic opening and outlet pelvic floor aspects, the respiration aspects. Um, but in terms of, uh, what you guys, uh, I, I think one thing I've learned from you guys is the timing of the knees. When does the knees end happen in the jump cycle? Could you tell me a little bit about your approach and, and some of the biomechanics that you guys are looking at in that uh, regard? Um, well, I know that, um, you, you've had some people on here talk about, you know, just everything agreeing, you know, the, it, the, if the femur is internally rotating, the tibia should be as well. You know, definitely looking for that agreement between the upper and lower leg to, you know, deem the internal rotation as legal. Um, most typically, that hip internal rotation occurs when the person is attempting to turn around at the bottom of the jump. So as I hit the bottom and my skeleton stops moving, my guts are still descending within my body. And so to stop that descent, I need to internally rotate, concentrically elevate the pelvic diaphragm to start to push everything back up. Um, and that's why you see the different, uh, like lower extremity presentations. If you ask someone to jump and stick a landing versus doing like quick repetitive pogo hops. So if I jump and stick a landing, there isn't the need to turn everything back around and push it up away from the ground. So I can maintain hip flexion, external and external rotation and abduction because I'm not trying to push my guts back up. I can let my pelvic diaphragm remain eccentrically oriented because I'm not changing direction. Whereas if I'm doing something like a quick pogo hop, you're automatically going to start to see the internal rotation at the hips increase because you can't let the pelvic diaphragm descend to such a great extent if you want to be able to get off the ground quickly. It makes me think a little bit about, and Mike, I know with Darian Barr, we talk about the, the timing of the Achilles unloading and unloading. And I think particularly like a, a single stance, like a like sprint gate, it almost seems to me that the in a bilateral, the timing of the guts, <laughs> you look at the timing of the guts going up and down and how does that load and unload being um being something to be mindful of in in how this athlete is performing this bilateral because i think we do talk about well does bilateral valgus you know i guess you could say illegal obviously if we're talking about something that's not good um lead to a single leg problem or a single leg landing problem etc etc but a lot of that a lot of what we're seeing in bilateral if we're seeing these come in is is um is in terms of the guts what's how is the guts projecting up and down 
the, the same thing happens on a single leg. Um, it, I just don't know that it's maybe as readily apparent as when you're having someone to do a double leg. Okay. Do a double leg jump. But that, you know, pistoning up and down of the guts is definitely still happening. Um, but I, I do think it, it's just a little bit harder to, to pick up. The trampoline's a little di- the the pelvic floor trampoline's probably a little different in, in that situation. Mm-hmm. But but you still need to be able to concentrically orient the you know that hemi diaphragm to be able to push off one leg. Um, so. When would in terms of timing? So if I'm watching, because I've this is something I've looked at a little bit, and I think we've we've talked about this before, but like the timing of when in terms of the jump cycle. So let's just even say a like a like a basic um like a small scale depth jump or even um or maybe yeah like a like a like a like a small hurdle jump or something like that like an athlete's jumping over some 12 inch hurdles or whatnot and in terms of the timing of when their knees are going in relative to the push off the extension or the loading is how does that how does that play into it like for example when an athlete's in their deepest point of loading versus as they're extending uh and then I think I know the pelvis plays a role that the positioning of the pelvis, but could you guys go into to that a little bit just from a timing perspective? Yeah. So uh, when you, you know, when the feet first hit the ground, they're going to be in some sort of flexion, abduction, external rotation, the hips will be. And, and what that does is allows everything to descend. When I need to turn that around is when I'm going to start, I'm going to need to uh, start to internally rotate the, uh, at the hips. So I'm going to reach maximum hip internal rotation when I'm trying, uh, when I'm having the most upward force against the ground. Once I get the guts moving in the right direction, then I can finish hip extension in some sort of external rotation without the negative consequence of, of the pelvic diaphragm descending because it's already unloaded and pushed everything up. Um, so I can finish hip extension um, because the, the pelvic diaphragm is already unloaded. So that's why you might see like external rotation and abduction at the, uh, right before the feet leave the ground because the pelvic diaphragm is already unloaded. Yeah. I've always, yeah, that's, that's a cool way of putting it. I've always just thought of it. I, again, I, I think I've lived a little bit more foot centrically the last year. So I had just looked at it as pronation and supination and, you know, it's you're supinating as you're towing off with that figure eight, but the the gut element of it, like I think, is fantastic. And so, in summary, the the max IR in a bilateral jump is at the peak, the the peak force, wherever that peak force is going to be. Um, that's when we want legal maximum internal rotation or triangle, like Darian says. Yeah, and and on my end, I'm just like you said, the feet. A lot of these kids. I, I will probably get to, I mean, they just got to know they have feet in their shoe. <laughs> so at the reversal, if we're seeing some kind of just toes out and knees in, and I've said it before in Jake Turr's pocket, that, that's not the inside edge we're looking for. That's knees in to lose. Is <laughs> knees not, in to lose. That's, that's a knees in to lose. <laughs> anyone is, is, is no one on our end is, is a rewire or daring. No one is advocating, you know, complete collapse of the ankles and, None of that. Um, so it's some of these kids at reversal. Again, I keep saying kids because, again, that, that's who we're training. They're just not, you know, a Darian's a big transverse arch guy. They're just at reversal. 
you know, that transverse arch is, is kicking out, the heels are dumping in, and then that's at that point in time that we tar- start talking about our strategies in terms of pressures and loading and, okay, what, what do we need to do? Because, um, you know, a lot of my young kids, they hurdle hop, and what, what you just said, you know, ER and IR, it all looks good. I don't have any reason to coach it on do, do, do anything. You know, it's just it doesn't need to be cued. So cueing these in is something we never, ever do. Um, I think Justin said the same thing. It's just because I video, oh, looks good. No need to fix it. <laughs> Let's just keep rolling on. Or, oh, the foot, that looks really bad. <laughs> that, they're not in agreement. And that's, and that's a Darian's term. Knees, feet, hips in agreement. It, it's, and, you know, tr- that's the triangle, strongest structure on the planet. And you can tell when a kid has a bad triangle, it's just that foot just completely just blows out, you know, goes outward. And now you're on a really unstable, poor base. Yeah. So to just to summarize, so to you, uh, and I mean, not just to you, but this being a principle. So a bad, a bad triangle to you would be a, a not an agreement triangle, meaning at that point of peak, um, internal rotation or knees in the, the toes are going out basically. Yeah, I mean, the, like he says, tibia is ERing and the femur is IRing, and that's the mechanism everyone talks about for ACL. But for some reason, we've gotten into just straight band walking and <laughs> sticking, sticking jumps and not addressing the actual, you know, components of again what what are the feet doing? You know, is, is one and okay, are the feet doing that because we can't load the hips, or are the feet doing it because we have absolutely no idea what the feet are doing? And, um, again, those are just all the puzzle pieces that, you know, I'm, I'm left to put together. And hopefully if I, I see someone that shows those signs and I'm there in pain, especially then, then hopefully I can convince their parents to see Stephen, and then it makes the whole process a lot easier for, for myself. I, I think that for more, you know, that the knee and the, the thigh and shin not being in agreement is more a symptom than the cause, you know, that, that's usually a compensatory strategy that they're trying to use. Um, so, but it's not the cause of what's causing the, uh, thigh and lower leg to not be in agreement. So I think starting at the knee and just having them push out against a band, you know, while that would certainly, you know, ER the femur and IR the tibia to help put them in agreement, it's also not addressing the cause of what it would be causing that, uh, excessive, uh, transverse plane knee motion in the first place. Yeah, it's just, and like I think you've mentioned, Stephen, if if perhaps like uh, uh, the pelvis is rotated um, externally and, and the pelvis like, and there's just not a lot of internal rotation and you're just, then you're basically just cranking someone into more external rotation or something like that with doing just clamshells. You're not, you're not fixing the agreement of the, the pelvis and the hip as, and the diaphragm as someone's dropping down. Uh, absolutely. You know, you need internal rotation to be able to push off the ground so like if i'm landing in a single leg jump and my hips are turned away from my stance foot i'm going to get all that internal rotation from my femur my femur is going to dive in it's going to be trying to get underneath my base of support and basically just following uh, my hips turning away from my stance foot whereas if when i land you know my zipper is towards the big toe and my hips are turned towards that foot I've gotten the internal rotation from my pelvis turning over my femur as opposed to the converse. 
And that's going to allow, you know, for me to get the internal rotation that I need, but with keeping everything in agreement, the hip, knee, and foot all pointed straight ahead versus them going in all different directions. Mike, in terms of uh, what you're seeing in this in squatting, this is a I, this is something I've been thinking about a little bit, and the idea of what what are you allowing during squatting in terms of and maybe just for an average athlete. I mean, I think the typical the prescription is you know jam your knees out, jam max er, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, from uh, how are you guys, I mean, how are you setting up uh, athletes to squat in respect to what you're letting their knees do, their feet, their hips, and and, and that type of thing. You know, again, it starts with my assessment and keep in mind that I do train a lot of kids that lift weights at school and some programs are a lot better than others. I'll just leave it at that. Um, you know, so I, I if I got a kid that, that tells me he squats 315, 330, whatever, and I'm watching him in my first warm, my first assessment exercise is just a shoes off body weight squat. Just start doing it. And you can learn a lot. Like, wow, that kid's heels are completely diving in. His toes are going out. And he has absolutely no idea that, that he's doing it, right? So, you know, what the first thing is, is I got to make him aware of what his feet are doing. And we cut the depth to right before where, that, where those feet move. Okay, so or feet, whether it's heels come up, heels steer out, heels steer in. To me, under load in a squat, none of those things are good, right? Um, so, and that speaks back to you know what we talked about the high box squat. So we would probably do. I do a lot of just long duration isometrics with a kid like that, whether it be on the belt squat machine or whether we decide to go zercher goblet front heels elevated whatever but uh in in terms of the knees i'm definitely not cueing them to push their knees out um i found recently where i'm more cueing them to keep their knees in line with their second toe and big toe um and then we'll play around with it looks a little bit better to have this kid towed out at maybe more towards one o'clock at 11 o'clock or oh no they got neutral feet and again those are notes i'm making in their assessment anyways and obviously those things could, could change a little bit um but uh, we're definitely not putting very seldom i'm not going to say never we're definitely not putting bands around feet or bands around knees um we are putting a ball between knees to get ir and hamstrings so there's just a little trick i, I learned from steve and a heels elevated like a like a little bit of a like a tiny soccer ball, you know, just a couple inches in diameter in between the knees and then probably more of a high box heels elevated squat. You want someone to feel their hamstrings in the squat? We're definitely doing that. And even if my kids have to lift weights at school, I'm not like overtaxing them with, with that kind of squat. And then my hope is to ingrain in them that they need to be understanding what their feet are doing when they're in the weight room at school. And maybe we want to back the weight down from three, <laughs> 315 to, you know, 185, 135 for a while, uh, just, you know, based on what I've seen. But, uh, you know, that hopefully that answers your question. With my young kids, it's just simply not letting them do it bad. You know, let's do isometrics. Let's do two sets of 10. Let's go to one by 20. Okay, let's go to one by 14. We better be able to do something heavier at 14 than at 20. Okay, you know, we do some APRE 10 type stuff. Obviously, bodies change. We want to get them to some sort of barbell front squat or safety squat, whatever. But sometimes I find myself taking that away and going backwards again. 
Um, so, you know, these are kids, again, with changing bodies and, and minds. So, I, I think just getting the, the hips underneath people is, you know, just changing hip orientation is an easy way to get a change in knee position. So if my hips dump forward, my knees are going to naturally start to come together and my femur is going to internally rotate. If I'm able to posteriorly <coughs> tip the pelvis, my knees are going to naturally start to track away from each other. So adjusting, you know, just being able to manipulate the pelvis position, whether it's tipped forward or backward, can be an easy way to get a resultant change in knee position. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and that's something I've learned from you guys that I've seen. It's it's really a... I just think we 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 tend to only look like you said before. If it's if it's the knees, we often tend to look only at the joint. Oh, your knees are in. Oh, do some clamshells. But that it's the the hip position is that super easy manipulator of where the knees are actually going to go and what what range they're allowed. And I think that's something that's very easily missed. So I and you know I feel like we've this is a question, but I feel like we've really just talked about it the whole time. But you guys' approach to total ACL prevention is really more about making sure things are in agreement and the athletes are feeling and sensing more so than oh your knees are in let's just get them let's just get them out you know like like or i mean so it's that would probably be it's it's really the whole thing i ask people it's it's really more the whole thing than it is just one component avoiding one component or are there or are there any correlations that you guys have seen it's like okay if you have this this let you know this this could be a really big factor in the acl equation um, so if you look at the ACLs attachment sites, you know, it attaches on the back inside of the femur and then, you know, on the front outside of the shin. And so that if my femur spins in and my tibia spins out, that would be what, you know, maximally tensions the ACL and could put it at risk for rupture. Um, so anything that you can do to try to get you know, tibial internal rotation and femoral external rotation to help take the ACL off tension would be something that helps, um, helps protect that ligament. And for a lot of knee conditions, you know, people always talk about the importance of the VMO and that's why in the, in the closed kinetic chain, the VMO acts to internally rotate the tibia and externally rotate the femur. And, you know, again, ways to, promote that position that would uh, protect the ACL, I would say it's most often getting some type of posterior pelvic orientation um, because that's going to bias the femur into external rotation. And Mike, I know, by the way, too, you're, you're, um, from what I know, your track record or results in terms of uh, you having not many kids end up with knee injuries has been pretty phenomenal using all this type of work, right? Well, I mean... First of all, I personally don't even, we don't even talk about ACL prevention. Of course, I'll get a parent or so that yeah. calls me. I personally just, we don't use that term, ACL prevention, we don't speak about it. I just say we move as well as we can. You know, disasters can happen. And unfortunately, I had a kid tear his ACL this summer in a summer league basketball game, and he went up for a layup, and a kid tackled him, and another kid came down on top of him. What are you going to do? I don't have any prevention strategy for that. I mean, like I yeah. joked Re Recreate it in the gym. <laughs> no, just kidding. We're going to start pushing sleds into kids' knees. And yeah. Yeah. Say, okay, here we go. Here, here's our prevention. I just, I just don't talk about it. 
Um, we've had a pretty good, we've had a really good track record, but, uh, you know, even before I didn't know anything about pressures and PRI and foot steering and transverse arch or, or what, and even when I was clamshelling people, um, we never, we didn't have those problems. And I think it's just, I don't allow shitty movement and we train fast and, you know, with doesn't look right. We make, we make changes, you know, and use proper progressions. So, and I think it's Mike Boyle has always said that it's, you know, ACL prevention is just moving well. Um, so we've never promoted bad movement. So I, I would imagine just like any other trainer or coach that operates the same way probably has about the similar track record. Now, with that being said, I had a kid rupture his Achilles this past winter with absolutely no explanation for why it happened. Um, and, uh, I'm certainly wasn't doing Achilles prevention training and nor am I going <laughs> to, you know, start doing it. It just was a, it was a freak accident. And, uh, unfortunately those things, those things happen. And to be honest, I don't know how preventable they are beyond doing the things that, that we're already doing. Sure. Yeah. Even, yeah, the, the, unpre- I mean, even like Achilles, a, 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 a European decathlete sent me a book of his uh, former K-State decathlete had sent me a book of his to read and he had ruptured his while competing. And he said he just had a, a genetically thinner Achilles. You know, sometimes like sometimes there's just stuff that that happens in there. But that's really humble of you to to put it that way, you know, and uh, like, yeah, like like you're alluding to with Mike Boyle, just just allowing good movement and creating a, um, an environment for good movement, I think is so important. And knowing what that is, too, and, and being a real true observer. And so one of the things and I think this could lead us into the last question with the feet and and still on the squatting train a little bit. But this is something that you had uh, mentioned that Adarian had taught you is is an outlier squat and i don't think this is a squat in terms of a barbell squat but maybe it's a nice gateway for talking about the feet is is what and i don't know if you ever do uh look at this in actual squatting motions in the way you're training but what what is an an outlier squat in terms of the foot and the transverse arch and that that appearance you know (laughs) you know darren uses outlier a ton but in terms of the outlier Squat outlier jump, it's that athlete that probably owns a ton of dorsiflexion range of motion. And so I guess really kind of having even gained more understanding but talking about what Stephen talks about pressures, that's the person that can, in a standing vertical jump, can drop their ass down to their heels but keep their thorax on top of their butt and really generate as you know, that wouldn't be an elastic type jump, obviously, but they can, you, and you see them, they're the guys, you know, on the jump mat with 42, 43 inch verticals, maybe their feet turn out a little bit or, or turn in. Everyone has a little bit different way of doing it. But, you know, if, if I tried to do that, I'd fall. On my face. <laughs> I, have, I have no range. My heels come up so fast, right? These people at the bottom, they, their ass pulls their heels up, but it is, they are already way down at the bottom of the jump and you know that's kind of what we deemed an outlier because there's not a lot of people that can do that kind of thing because they just they, they own they have extreme range and they can own it and they're also very fast through that range that's one thing darian talks about right is if you're going to increase range or have a lot of range you better be really fast through that range so having someone that's extremely lax and slow and trying <laughs> to get them even though they can do the movement that would not be an outlier jumper squat because it would not result in a 41 inch vertical jump or, or whatever 
Yeah. So, so speed, mobility, and the ability to engage the feet and the fascial lines through that's what yields yeah, that. Do, they probably have no idea that they oh, yeah. are. And, right? They're just, they're just gifted. So we're not – my goal is not trying to get people to be an outlier vertical jumper. But I do have a kid right now who's getting ready for a walk-on tryout at OU, and, and he has all those abilities. And I was like, look, man, this you should try jumping like that. And, and sure as shit. Man, he drops his butt down his heels, reverses it, and he's pop, he pops. So, um, that, that, again, that's just knowing, like, okay, we got this tool. I know what it is from Darian. Here's one person that I could give him, and he's one out of 100-plus kids. And that would make why it's called an outlier squad, right? <laughs> yeah, it does It does make me think about, yeah, like, the to be able to do it fast, you have to have like that fascial line. I feel like that whole, the fascial line and the myelination all, all driven into that system. I don't think you can just squat someone into being able to do that. Cause then it, you could get there, but then it's not necessarily fast. Um, maybe on a level, maybe if you're an Olympic lifter and you're dropping under a squat clean, you know, thousands and thousands of times fast, maybe you can get that a little bit. Even all those athletes don't stand necessarily vertical jump like that. Um, it's, uh, it's really incredible. But uh, so with the feet, though, so leading into that and the foot. Um, so, M- Mike, let's start with you. What are some and I'm sure you've learned a ton of stuff from a Darian, but what are some you know, you're going through your warm ups, your movement? What are some ways you're getting the feet moving? You're starting to draw awareness there. What are what are some the big things in your arsenal on how you're engaging the feet in uh, athletic, athletic performance practice? Yeah, so our warm up is barefoot, probably like most people these days. And we're not doing it barefoot to say, hey, we're barefoot people. It's really so I can see what each kid's foot is doing. And like I said, <laughs> you know, I got some 13-year-olds that, you know, if their feet became their hands, I'm not really sure that they would actually know that that, that happened. So like I tell the kids, at the very least, for a passing grade, you should at least know you have feet. <laughs> at least know that they exist underneath your body. And, you know, for some of these 13-year-old kids, I mean, that, that's it makes a little bit of a difference. But in our warm-ups, you know, we – we might just do some, you know, we might even do some ISO lunge extremes or, or something like that. Uh, sometimes it's just like what Adarian uh, has coined base position work, which is kind of the, you know, the, the start of everything that we do or athletic posture, which is just that squatting down, staying vertical with the torso just before the heels come up. So it could be, you know, just little uh, hops in place like that. It could be split squats. Um, it could be half or a split squatted med ball throws. Sometimes our warm up is a circuit. Sometimes I have the kids line up and I just tell them what to do. And then sometimes we get on, then we'll get on, you know, what I say is the track, which is just our straightaway where we run. And, you know, whether we're squatted running, whether we're folding up running or squatted and folding up or, you know, doing some sort of skip or whatever, the theme is always let's know, let's set up and know what your feet are doing. Um, now, you know, if I get a big group of 10 to 12 kids, it's hard to take the time to sit down next to every single kid and get their Achilles to be set up correctly. That would We would get no exercise in at that time. But it's just continually giving them the reminder. I'll show them because I'm usually barefoot at this point in time too. Here is the part of your foot that I want your pressure. If you feel yourself gripping your toes, let's let go of our toes. Okay, and then, you know, if I have a kid, I'm like, I know this kid really needs to be cued to – steer his heels out or point his toe out a little bit, whatever. Like, Hey man, Hey Justin, remember this, I got set up. 
you know, and just continually ingrained it. So there's not a day that goes by in the gym where what are your feet doing isn't the theme. In terms of uh, some of the ideas too, with the like like the pinky toe up and and not gripping your toes and things like that. So how does uh, I'm I know like the pinky toe idea is works its way into what you're doing as well. Has that evolved over time, or are you always just that's kind of going to be the theme starting tomorrow? Like because I can't you know like you know you can't can't be like, like all right we're going to train and the you know people that know we're we're going to talk about flab we're going to talk about inside edge we're going to do sky we, we typically even though I'm the feet are, we're always looking at them. We kind of have one concept. So I think tomorrow and this week, we're really going to try to cue that, push that pinky toe away and kind of some static positions. Um, that's just one thing I got to be careful with because that cue is not for every kid. So some of my heavily already pronated kids, that does not work very well. Um, and then that's where using Indari- uh, trying to get some of these kids to do the exercises on Indarian's inserts really is powerful. Uh, because now I can give them a reference with their feet. And if I want them to, to push pinky toe away to get inside edge, getting them to do that on that kind of platform is a lot more effective than just doing it on the carpet or <laughs> in a shitty pair of Adidas, obviously. Yeah, there's a lot more feedback on on that versus just the the general floor that you're kind of sinking into. And so uh, then also for people who haven't heard it on the show, I don't, pinky toe, lifting the pinky toe gives you more of the pressure on the inside edge of the foot and it tightens the the arches of the foot as well in that process and so but yeah like you said if someone's already and maybe this is something to mention is the i mean usually we lack we tend to lack pronation or abilities to pronate well or get power off the inside edge but you said there are those kids who are over pronated um what is your approach for people who are kind of stuck in pronation or have have those problems and this is for e- either of you guys to answer uh, those are tough. They're tough. Um, I've tried some stuff with some band steering. I think uh, getting them to understand where their pressure needs to be. Because um, it, it just seems like when they go to transfer weight, and let's just say in a vertical jump or even like a broad jump, you know, the, that the heel will obviously pronate very hard and the toes can come out. And those people are like, oh, yeah, they don't have a medial arch, right? That That's... Uh, part of the problem um you know short foot exercise stuff i, I don't do a whole lot of those i think Adarian had just put a post up about how you know the toes aren't really part of the arch structure uh what seems to work for me is really getting them to understand that their pressure needs to be on that transverse arch ball of the foot and getting them to do that without if I, if I told them to just try to push their pinky toe away, their foot just collapses because they can't do that in this already pronated position. So getting them to, I, I guess they probably need some supination, right? And then again, just getting them to understand here's where your pressure needs to be on this transverse arch uh, and literally getting down on my hands and knees and pointing to that part of their foot while they're barefoot. And then again, ingraining it with good split squats, split stance, even a split stance cable. Hey, look at your foot. What's your foot doing? You know, again, that's just training for performance versus just general exercise where you're just ignoring all of those factors. And uh, in time, hopefully it it works. And more times than not, I'd say it has. Yeah, and um, 
some of the foot steering concepts are a little bit newer to me, but um, as I was looking at them more recently, I, I think, you know, you can probably set up some exercises in the gym to try to get the desired pronation or supination of the foot that you're looking for without necessarily having to do as much cueing. Um, and so if you look at foot steering and actually compare it to a car, it actually works pretty similarly. So if I'm in a front wheel drive car and I'm trying to turn the car to the right, you know, the right tire would turn out and the left tire would turn in as my hips turn to the right. And so you can actually bias, you know, like if my right foot's in front and I'm, I'm turning my hips to the right, I would be getting pronation of the right foot as I'm getting internal rotation of the right hip. Whereas if I have my left foot in front and I'm turning my hips to the right, now I'm getting supination of my left foot as I'm turning the hips to the right. And so you can, you can play with the direction that people are moving, whether it's forward and backward, and then the direction, of their the direction they're turning to get the supination or pronation of the foot that you're looking for. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, the foot steering too. I, I hadn't even thought about that till a couple of years ago when Adarian had brought it up to me. And, and now I, I see it in a lot of things now. Uh, the last thing, we're just kind of, out of getting out of time here uh, for the show. But Mike, I was going to ask you if outside of the warm-up, so outside of just sensation and, and helping people feel different parts of the foot. And I was going to say too, I really like that idea of um, for overpronated feeling the full transverse arch. I imagine a lot of those people, or I know a lot of those people will lose um, ball of the fifth, that, that uh, pinky toe ball of the foot likes to come off the ground a lot. Um, but what do you do any other like like perform so for more like the the high intensity sector foot training so anything do you do anything that's more intensive in terms of uh plyometric strength work anything that amplifies some of these things that uh you've learned from a darian or does it just stay in the warm-up and then you get the activation and you take it with you so i mean like well shoot i mean joy way back when i met you and started just picking your brain and paying you for your time um, you know, you'd be like, I think I was asking about, Hey, how do I get kids to bound better? And you start telling me about rudiment hop series. So now we use the rudiment hops to really get what we just talked about. You know, that's a lot of just light foot contacts, barefoot continually understanding, Hey, what, what are the feet? Hey, you know, not toes or right heels should be tapping, you know, just that, that's an easy way you know, to be a little bit more dynamic than just standing in base position. Um, I'll go as far as like, I, I love, I'll tell you kids, we'll get in uh, athletic posture and do these arch marches, which I think I had sent to you and you put on a, a post and for 40 seconds, put pressure on your transverse arch and just tap your heels in an athletic posture. You want to talk about <laughs> hamstring and glute warm up, uh, you know, uh, activation. I don't care what it's called, but, kids will they'll be like damn that sucks um and then we'll we'll do it on the belt squat with a little bit of load um you know not with beginner not with my younger kids but my older kids we'll do that kind of stuff so now the load is kind of weighting them down and you know they get they got to work that and then uh you know just neat little like we'll have little heel tapping contests on the darian's inserts to see again pressure on the transverse arch how fast can you can you tap that that heel and you can't do it well if you don't have pressure on the transverse arch. So, um, those are just little things that I will put in kids programs, especially kids that lift weights at school. Again, that's easy stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems to pay off for us 
that isn't incredibly taxing. It's not affecting their workouts at school. And in the long scheme of things, it seems to get them faster. So. Yeah, yeah, because you know the workouts at school, and even even a lot of the lower leg training is is very uh, there's very force specific derivatives where you're you're really engaging that speed that uh, get the arch structure in place that just fast rapid fire work that you can always do, even if you're doing another program you can always add that in and see sure. see good sure. results. So yeah, I, I love that stuff. Yeah, that and the heel tap too. I think. Um, I don't know if I'd, <laughs> I think, yeah, just for a quick description too, it's, uh, I mean, and you said it, it's just basically that, that quick twitch of the heel tapping up and down. And I've, I've seen that. I've seen my better athletes, like my better, my best, best moving tennis players when they're like the ball's getting hit to them and they're sitting waiting with the racket, you'll watch their heels, like click tap up and down real fast. The fast guys do that faster than the guys who aren't moving the ball better. Sure. It's, it's if just you're going to use a false step or what Lee Tap calls a plyo step, whatever. You have to be able to do that. You know, it, it has to be your that foot's going to step back, that heel's going to drop, load that Achilles. It's how quickly can you get that sucker to tap, get that foot off the ground, and get to the next step. Whereas the bad false step would be stepping far back with a straight knee that he'll just go you know just farts on the ground and <laughs> yeah. you know you're not getting any sort of elastic effect or achilles or, or, or any of those things so um heel tapping is something in our team sport population we are doing all of the all the time yeah it's it's something that's so it's one of the most natural athletic things i think we can do and one of the things that darian pointed out when i i uploaded that kid like i don't know if you saw that kid who was doing the the worst form you know quote quote unquote the worst form in terms of if you're actually trying to lift weights safely and oh, if, uh, the, as per clean, yeah the, yeah if you're trying to lift weights safely it was <laughs> he's heel tapping he's rolling the bar in to do a clean heel tapping while the bar uh, darian pointed out he's heel tapping while the bar is rolling in and in terms of pure elastic response off the ground that's awesome but in terms of being safe off the ground obviously it's not going to be uh good for you in the long term <laughs> Uh, but man, I mean, the kid got the weight though. You know, it's, um, it was really an amazing thing, but and, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyways, I know, Hey, we're, uh, we're running out of time for today. It is a pleasure talking to both of you guys. It was just a blast having you on the show. And I love how you guys interact and are, are really hitting those, um, different ends of that performance spectrum in getting kids healthier, stronger, and, and, uh, more resilient. So, Hey, I appreciate you guys being on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hey, thank you that does it for another episode i'm signing out for this week thanks for tuning in it was awesome talking with mike and steven and if you enjoyed the show please leave us a rating or review on itunes stitcher whatever you're listening to we'd really appreciate it and it really helps us out spreading the word and helping us climb the charts a little bit in the sport world of podcasts, sports performance, health, and nutrition. So that being said as well, please don't forget to support our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have the best of in each category of sports tech from force plates to muscle stimulators. They also have a fantastic blog, so be sure to check them out and support them. I'm out for this week. We'll see you next one with another great guest.